I tell you what, that I love the music set this morning. Praise God. That was good. Is Jason here? It's good, brother. I'm telling you, it's good. Is, uh, is Jacob Ham still here? Oh, no, not Jacob Ham. Jacob Martin. All these Jacobs <laughs> running around. Sorry. I don't know if Jason, uh, is Jacob here? No, did he go? In the, in the, he, might, he might be in the foyer. Hi, Jacob. If you're in the foyer, I'm waving to you on the TV there. Wasn't that solo good? I'm just here to tell you, Jesus likes strings, okay? Jesus likes guitar. Uh, and we are blessed as a church to have uh, uh, talented musicians and singers, and we praise God for that. What if, what if we uh, had more singing? Would you all like that? Should we increase the, uh, the worship uh, um, time at First Baptist Church? Should we go instead of an hour and a half, should we go two hours? What do you all think? I'm, so, I'm seeing some people go, mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm hearing other people say, yeah. Yeah, what do y'all think? Two hours? Should we have a church vote on it right now? Huh? Don't even pray about it. Just, I don't know. I don't know. Because we're definitely not cutting back on the preaching time. Amen. Def- this is not doing that. Uh, theology is the foundation for a healthy church. And a lot of churches are built on uh, doxology, and they got it, they got it backwards, right? So, so doctrine, foundation, um, doctrine is the foundation for a healthy church. Which, by the way, if you look at the New Testament, if music was preeminent, then guess what we would be doing? More music, you know. I mean, if there's a bunch of drama going on in the New Testament, is that how you build a healthy church, through drama? Then we, we have a lot of drama going on. But we have drama anyway, so we don't have to have a drama team to have drama in the church. Amen. You following? <laughs> Please get a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. God's word is sufficient for the needs of God's people. And I'm praying that God would take the preaching of his word today, and this message will be like an arrow to your heart in a good way. Right, that you'll be struck with the majesty and the might of God and his gospel in Jesus Christ. Thank you, brother. Miss Roberta, did that help a little bit, the water? I felt bad. I gave it to her. I had already sipped from the, the, the bottle, and she was, I told her that, and it was like, it's okay. So it almost is as like we kissed, right? Monica, is that all right? It's not, it's not okay? Is that okay? Well, too bad. Okay, get to the preaching, Mark. Get to the preaching. Okay, cut that out. That's not really smooth, and the message is cut that out of the recording, right, for the, the webcast. No, whatever. All right. Acts chapter 3. Surely they're not as, well, never mind. Never mind. Okay, here we go. Have you all ever heard of a man named Dr. Craig Keener? Yes, I've told you about him. Some of you know, some of you do not know him. He's a renowned New Testament scholar at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is a Methodist seminary in Kentucky. He received his PhD in New Testament studies and Christian origins from Duke University. He has authored 24 books, and five of which have won book awards in Christianity Today of which together more than one million copies are in circulation. In fact, he's also, uh, uh, he has a, 
commentary called the IVP Bible Background Commentary. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Yep, OH, I know. John, you're an elder. You should. Anybody else? Okay. <laughs> okay, the IVP Bible Background Commentary. If you're a Sunday school teacher, uh, you need to get that. It's about that thick. And what's cool about it is it, it gives you the historical background, the cultural background to specific passages. And it's incredibly enlightening. Uh, in fact, it's just the basics of good Bible interpretation, right? Don't read the Bible just on the surface. Read it in context. Well, there's a big gap between our culture context and the culture of the Bible, right? And just a newsflash, the Bible was not written to you. You got that? The Bible was written for you. The Bible was written to the original audience, right? But it was written for us as well. So it's good to know the, the cultural background. That kind of a commentary helps you. He also... Um, uh, published the NIV, well, we'll forgive him for that, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. Okay, I make a joke about the NIV. It's the nearly inspired version, but it's, it's fine if you actually read it, okay? But he, he published the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. So there's a lot of whole, whole lot of study Bibles out there, okay? And this particular one won Bible of the Year in 2017 in the Christian Book Awards and also won Book of the Year in the Religion Christian category of the International Book Awards. So, I told you about him, a little bit more about his publishing. I would encourage you to consider those, the IVB Bible Background Commentary and the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. If you want a study Bible that emphasizes the cultural backgrounds of the Bible verses. Well, he, he was writing uh, one of his uh, peer-reviewed scholarly articles, not big books, and uh, he started with a footnote on miracles but then he started to investigate and that footnote turned into a two-volume work of over 1,200 pages. <laughs> Only a professor can do that. Turn a footnote into a 1200, uh, over 1,200 pages of a two-volume work on miracles. On miracles. It's, it's a great book. He documents reports of miracles all over the globe in Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean. And it's so encouraging to read these accounts. Uh, that book also includes perspectives on miracles from the patristic area, uh, era, which is the, area, the era of the early church fathers, also of the medieval period, and that of the Protestant reformers. So it's an all-encompassing. He also takes on David Hume, which is a um, very important philosopher that I'm going to talk about in a minute. I'll show you a slide on what he, he says. But in this book on miracles, Dr. Keener tells uh, of a nine-year-old girl who was deaf without her hearing aid, but was praying for healing and was instantly healed to the audiologist's amazement, okay? And the dumbfounded consultant responded, and I'm quoting here, quote, I don't believe you. It's not possible. But the next day, the test revealed that her hearing was now normal. And the doctor's report con uh, uh, contained these words, and I'm quoting the doctor's report, quote, her hearing returned completely to normal. I was completely unable to explain this phenomenon. I can think of no rational explanation as to why her hearing returned to normal, there being a severe bilateral sensory neural loss, close quote. Amen. That's what God does. He works miracles. Amen. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a God? Some people do course we're in church hopefully you you believe in God but um, 
There are some people who refuse to believe, not just in miracles, they refuse to believe in God himself. And there was one very influential philosopher whose name was David Hume, and he provided the rationale that modern atheists use today. And I've got a, um, a slide on that, if we could bring that up, okay? Uh, when you use the word philosopher, sometimes you'll start to lose people and their, their eyes roll back. Okay, so just stay with me. David Hume, okay? So students, pay attention to this because you're gonna need this when you encounter knuckleheads in the, uh, in the university, okay? So how do you answer the atheist? Well, first of all, their argument is from, we would say, a distorted reason, okay, or, or reasoning, which is man's mind. And basically, the atheists say this, people worship and serve God out of theological need, uh, theological, sorry, psychological need. In other words, you believe in God, you worship God because you need to believe in God. You want something or someone out there to give you a sense of purpose, a sense of identity, and so basically what's happening is it's mere wishful projection. That's the psychological term, wishful projection. You feel bad about your life, you need forgiveness, therefore you basically invent this guy called God, okay? But it's all based on psychological need. And David Hume was the guy that set up the philosophical reasoning for that, and all the other modern philosophers followed David Hume. That's why I'm highlighting David Hume as it relates to the history of ideas. He's a big dog. He's a big dog philosopher, okay? But there's a bigger dog out there. His name is the Apostle Paul, and he arguments from not just uh, distorted reasoning, but from divine revelation. And those are big twin towers we need to make sure we understand, right? So where do our views of God come from? Are they just from rational, or are they from God himself, divine revelation? And so the first thing that the Christian should answer was, is this. It is true that we want to believe in God. In other words, we'll concede that to the atheist. Yep, we do want to believe in God, all right? But next, is it possible, O oh atheist or unbeliever, that atheists argue from psychological need too, right? So when you start to think about these philosophers, don't think as if they're like all you know, unique in their reasoning or their own situation. Because I would argue that at the end of the day, it's not really a rational argument as to why people deny God's existence. It's a moral issue. It's a moral issue. And what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, if we could put that third one up there, people worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And it's interesting what people do without God, according to the Apostle Paul. He says that they suppress the truth. And he actually says this, he says, although they knew God, God revealed himself to everybody. They knew God. They did not glorify God as God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And so that's what unbelievers do. They suppress the truth, and then they also exchange it for, your English translations have a lie, but in the original Greek, it's the lie. They exchange it for the lie. All right, so how would you answer an atheist? You wanna take a picture of that? Go ahead, take a picture of that. That might help uh, get you on your way with that. But let me ask the, the, the believers that are listening. Do you believe God still intervenes and works miracles today? Do you believe that? 
I hope so. And if so, when was the last time you prayed for God to work a miracle? I'll confess to you as I'm going about verse by verse with you uh, through the book of Acts, this emphasis on miracles, this kind of rung me over the head. When was the last time I actually prayed for a miracle? And several weeks ago, it's just like, wow. It has been a while. I, th- I mean, a miracle, not a work of providence, right? Big difference, right? A, a miracle. So the Lord is awakening me to in- include more and more praying for miracles in, in my prayer life. Today, I would like to show you uh, four pictures regarding God's people and how they use miracles for witnessing. And I pray today, listen, I pray that God would bring someone from unbelief to belief today. Amen? I hope God does that through this message. I pray that. That would be the greatest miracle of all. I'm also praying that Christians would increase their petitions for miracles, not only just in their lives, but in the lives of the lost around them. So when that miracle happens, you're right there and you can say, yeah, this is what's going on. Boom, 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 and declare the gospel to them, the good news of Jesus. But I also have something else in my heart and in my spirit today regarding this message. I pray that God would bring strength to your heart through the hope and the power of Jesus Christ. I'm praying God would just put his omnipotent fingers on the volume button, if I could use this picture as it relates to hope, and increase the hope and, and the, the joy that comes from knowing the power of God in Jesus Christ. So let's look at it today. I'm preaching from Acts chapter three, beginning in verse uh, 17. So hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> if you don't know the context, uh, you haven't been with us. So basically, Peter and John are going to the temple. They're, they're at the gate called Beautiful. And there's a man that's been lame since birth. And, and he's begging for alms. He's begging for money and handouts. And basically, he looks up at Peter and John, and Peter's the first to speak, and he says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And he bends down, takes the man's hand, and his ankles and his feet and his legs are strengthened, and now he's just like praising God, and he's joining them as they go into the temple. Well, can you imagine if something like that happened in this worship service? There would be a commotion, right? light up social media so so this is this is an opportunity there's a big commotion now at the temple and now um, uh, it's an opportunity for Peter to explain the gospel okay that's that's the context verse 17 and now brethren I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer he has thus fulfilled therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that Every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these things. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... 
God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Amen. That's enough for today. Amen. Father, as we go into your word preaching, I pray that you would anoint me and anoint every hearer to hear what you are saying to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's look at these four pictures and then we'll be done, okay? Number one, miracles can be used to speak of personal responsibility for sin. You'll notice there in verse 17, he says, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. Now, when Paul, or rather, when Peter calls the audience brethren, he's referring to them as his fellow Jews. He's not referring to them as if they're already Christians. Okay, so just mark that. And he tells them that with regard to the crucifixion of Jesus, they acted in ignorance. Now, wait a minute. In what way were they ignorant? Didn't the Jews and their uh, rulers and the Gentiles and Herod and Pilate know what they were doing when they had Jesus crucified? Answer, yes. In one sense, of course they knew what they were doing. They wanted him dead. And did they kill him? Yes, they wanted him gone. But in the sense that Peter is using here, they did not understand really or perceive what they were truly doing. And, and Peter is making this clear. Just as God's acting through Jesus in this healing of the man shows what the understanding of Jesus should be. This healing and what it means gives the Jews another opportunity to, to understand what they have done. So this ignorance here that Peter is speaking of does not leave them without responsibility or excuse. And this is why Peter is urging the, um, the, the crowd to respond. They must act. Ignorance cannot prove as an ultimate excuse, especially now that Peter has revealed God's program to them. Their sin of not recognizing Jesus as Messiah and of killing him can still be forgiven if they respond. So human ignorance does not take away the need to repent because the penalty and the responsibility for the ignorance are still present. All right, now follow with me. What is the normal dodge to personal responsibility to sin when people are left to themselves? Is it a real quick speedy confession or is it a speedy denial? <laughs> Let's just go back to the beginning for a second, okay? Right, what, what, uh, when God first confronted Adam, what was his response? Yeah, my bad, I did it. Nope, quote, it was the woman. <laughs> Part one, Part two, that you gave me. <laughs> Oops. Imagine the audacity. Do you, do you feel the rebellion in that? It was the, not me, her, that you gave me. Uh-oh. Well, let's see how it goes for sinner uh, number two. When God confronts Eve, what does she say? Yeah, my bad. I did it. Yep. What does she say? It was a serpent. The serpent did it. I was deceived, and I ate. So let's just continue to track through human history here. What's sinner number three say when God says, hey, Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? So fallen humanity does not have a good track record with taking personal responsibility for sin, do we? <laughs> do we? Just talk to unbelievers and see how quick they are 
to what? Cover up, deny, project blame, boop, 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 right? What's Peter doing though? What, he's using the miracle to show everybody you need to take personal responsibility for your sin. Now, why would Christians do that and unbelievers not do that? The grace of God. That's why. What, are, are you guys like smarter than unbelievers out there? Say no. <laughs> it was the grace of God. It was the mercy of God. It was the love of God that so overwhelmed us. Was it not? Right? It was the spirit of the living God causing us to come into a new being through the recognition of our sin and the need of Jesus, our Savior. Praise God. Praise God. So no, humanity does not have a good track record of taking personal responsibility for sin. What is true of the first three sinners confronted by God is true of me and you as well when we're left to ourselves, beloved. Here's a true story. One woman uh, hit a neighbor, the, the police will like this. One woman hit a, a neighbor's tree and when the police officer came and asked her what happened, she said, quote, an invisible car suddenly hit my car and vanished. <laughs> true story. With that, the officer gave her a long stare and then asked her to take the drunk driver's test. Yeah. Another driver hit a telephone pole. When the police officer asked him what happened, he literally said, quote, the telephone pole was approaching my car really fast. I attempted to swerve, but the stupid pole collided with my car. Straight face, they're saying that. So here's the takeaway. When you declare what God has done in Christ to unbelievers, make sure you tell them about their personal responsibility of sin before God. They've got to feel that. That's how we came to know Jesus, right? Now, why would that be important? That leads us to number, picture number two. Miracles can be used to speak of the prophetic promise and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It can be used to speak of personal responsibility for sin. You guys acted in ignorance. But here we find miracles can be used to speak of the prophetic promise and fulfillment in Christ. I'm picking this up in verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Everybody say fulfilled. In the book of Acts, God is the major actor. It is his program that brings his kingdom through Jesus Christ. And this actually emerges out of the gate in verse one of chapter one where uh, Luke tells us and he speaks of, quote, the things that have been fulfilled among us. So in Acts, Luke's make, Luke rather makes the point that Jesus continues to work in the world as the exalted Lord. The Jews and their leaders acted in ignorance, but what took place fulfilled God's plan and revealed, as revealed rather, uh, in the prophets. Now what we have here, if you haven't noticed this yet, in these first two verses here of our passage, 17 and 18, we have another revelation of human responsibility and divine design side by side, okay? Who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Well, all the bad guys are. 
Pontius, Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the Jews. But you also find scriptures who's ultimately responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God is. Both are true, right? They did what God had predetermined and planned before the foundation of the world. When you read your Bible, you're going to find those two together, oftentimes. And you just got to say, okay, there it is. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. In other words, God wasn't surprised. Oh, no, they crucified my son. What do we do now? Right? No, no, it's not like that. Notice that Peter begins telling them that they acted in ignorance, but he also includes, right, this is what God announced beforehand by the uh, mouth of all the prophets, that Christ would suffer and thus it is fulfilled. So big picture in Acts, this is summarizing uh, uh, much of the preaching in Acts. Promise, fulfillment. I'm a simple man, I like simple things, how about you? Promise, fulfillment. Promise, fulfillment. It's all over the preaching in the book of Acts. Of course, if you cut off the Old Testament from preaching, then all you get is, not promise, you get fulfillment, all right? So don't do that with God's word, Mr. Preacher Man. Oh, and by the way, people of God, don't listen to preachers who do that with God's word, amen. Like Andy Stanley, right? He's basically saying, well, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. I says, foreign, we don't need that. We just need Jesus, okay? Hello, Jesus was promised in the Old Testament. The Messiah would come. Promise fulfillment. Amen. Why do I say that? Whether you know this or not, this is why. Preachers have a responsibility before God to preach the whole counsel of God. You follow? Not the whole counsel of their little minds, even when it's with good intentions. So it is a big deal here that the Old Testament, Peter's saying, with all the preaching of the prophets, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why is this a big deal? Because it reveals, among many things, that God is not a liar. You can trust him. You can trust God. You can trust him. And when you read and study more of the Old Testament, you will find more reasons to trust God. For example... When Hurricane Katrina ravaged the coast of Mississippi, some workers went to a home that was owned by a retired United Methodist pastor. Uh, He happened to be Reverend Jones. And Reverend Jones said he and his wife left their home before Katrina struck and had gone to a shelter. After the storm passed, they were allowed to go back into the city to grab a few belongings. When they entered their house, the water was still knee high, but Jones was determined to see what he could salvage. Wouldn't you wanna do the same thing? Absolutely. He saw several framed family photos floating in the water. He didn't see anything else to save, so he grabbed the pictures and he left. They go back to the shelter. He took the photos out of their frames so they could dry out, right? Dry out the pictures. When he removed his father's picture, money fell out of the frame. To the tune, he counted $366 out of the frame of his father's picture. Even more astounding was that his father had died in 1942 when Jones himself was only 12 years old. The retired pastor had no idea the money was in the frame and the money was precisely 
uh, the, 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 uh, that amount was precisely what he and his wife needed to go to Atlanta after the storm to live with their daughter. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Listen, that's a lot like the Old Testament for Christians. There is treasure there that still lies to be discovered. Amen. And that treasure that the father hid is what was needed to get his child down the road to a better place. That's like the Old Testament with Christians. It is more practical than you first think and it will provide for you to get you through the storms of life and down the road to a better place in Jesus Christ. The father had provided provision before the son knew he was in need. That's our great God. That's why he took a few thousand years to provide for you, Christian, with the Old Testament. And beloved, by the time Peter is done preaching and explaining this promise and fulfillment, about 5,000 men come to believe in Jesus Christ according to Acts 4, 4. Would you say that that was pretty successful? 5,000 men? Actually, uh, when, you, when you study this, the, the scholars will debate. Well, it was 5,000 men. Uh, women were not counted back then. And, you know, and some say, no, no, it's, it's the whole believing community. It includes women. They go back and forth. In fact, do you remember how many men or people came to believe after Peter's first message at Pentecost? What was the number? You remember? 3,000. Now we're having Acts 4, 4, how many? 5,000. And so the scholars debate again, well, is it 3 plus 5 equals 8,000, or is it now the total summary of now 5,000? Some say this, some say that. We don't know for sure. I wonder if Peter said, we count people because people count except for the women and children. No, he probably didn't say that. No, I don't know. Regardless, do you recall how many people the church began with in Acts 1.15? How many are in the upper room? After the 12th, in the upper room? Oh, you don't know, I get to tell you. Thank you, Miss Laura Gregory, 120. 120. Now we're talking what? 8,000, add the women, 16,000, add the couple kids, upwards to 32,000 people. You see what's happening here? Do you see the power of God, church? 12, 120, upwards to 32,000 people. Do you see what miracles can do? Do you see what the Holy Spirit can do through followers of Jesus Christ? That same Holy Spirit seals every true believer in Jesus Christ. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, Christian. Get your head up. Get your head up when the, the winds of life assail you and the waves crash upon your spirit and your heart and your soul. Do not think that God's power has somehow waned and that it's harder for people to come to salvation. It's never been hard. It's always been impossible. God must raise the dead in order to bring people from unbelief to belief. 
It's the greatest miracle of all. And if you happen to be a believer in Jesus Christ, if you happen to be a a believer, you're a Christian, you are a miracle of God. Miracles can be used to speak of the prophetic fulfillment of promise rather and fulfillment in Christ. And by now we should be noting a pattern in Peter's uh, preaching that we will see again and again and again. And what is that pattern? Well, I've already told you, but I'll repeat. (laughs) Jesus continues to work in the world as the exalted Lord through his people. That's the message of the book of Acts. They crucified him. He was buried. Three days later, up up from the grave he arose. By the way, who raised Jesus from the dead? His father did, amen? By the way, who raised Jesus from the dead? The Holy Spirit of God did, it says in Romans. Oh, and, and in John's gospel, Jesus said, I have the authority to raise myself up. He goes to the right hand of the Father and he sends the Holy Spirit. Now that same Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, he's Lord through his church and he continues to work in the world through his people. This is very encouraging to me. I hope it is to you. Pray for God to give you opportunity to speak that word to unbelievers around you, the word of Jesus, the gospel. Make every opportunity to speak that word to unbelievers around you. Pray for miracles to occur in the lives of unbelievers in order to have opportunity to speak the good news of Jesus Christ. Number three, There's more in this picture of miracles. Number three, third picture, miracles can be used to speak of repentance. Notice what the word, according to the NASB, what's the first word in verse 19 that Peter uses? In the NSB, here's the first word of verse 19. Therefore, okay, you acted in ignorance. Basically, this was a fulfillment of the prophetic word. Now he's getting into, you need to respond to me. That's what Peter's doing. Therefore, Very important word. This indicates Peter is now going to call for a response from the crowd to God's action in Jesus Christ. And we need to take note of this and ask the same of unbelievers that are around us. And what is that response? Look what Peter says. Go back to verse 19. Therefore, two words there, what? Repent and return. Repent and return. Both verbs represent summary calls to respond. Repentance as the summary response to the apostolic message stretches, stresses the need for a change in direction to change one's mind about where one is. And it's not just for Jews, praise God, it's for Gentiles. So here's, here's the picture below. This is basically what it is. People are going this way, away from God. Disbelieve God, don't want you in my life, God rejection of you and they're they're confronted with the good news of Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he died for sinners in order to save them from their sin because there's coming a day of judgment every last one of us are going to appear before a holy God and we're going to have to give an account for our lives and that's a problem for me because God only lets holy people into heaven right that's a problem for every one of us right Nothing unclean is gonna enter God's holy heaven. So it's this depiction of people just going their own way, rejecting God, and then they're confronted with this good news of Jesus Christ. 
They hear the word and they turn around and they turn back to God in repentance, in faith, in returning to God. That's what's happening here. That's what's being depicted here. It's very simple. It's very simple. But it's also very profound because Jesus said, wide is the road and many Right? Is the, uh, many people go into the wide road that leads to destruction. There's only a few people, and it's a narrow road that leads to life. Few find it, Jesus said. So Peter uses a variety of terms to describe properly responding to his message. I'm going to highlight that for us. The variety indicates, listen now, the variety indicates that the early church had a collection of terms, not just one, to indicate how to respond to the gospel message. Earlier, it's faith. Would you, would you faith God? Would you trust God? Here, the terms are repentance and returning. You see that? Variety of terms. Repentance and faith are almost synonymous So repentance has a beginning and it continues and increases in the Christian life. So to the church I ask, what is God calling you to turn from and come back to him as it relates to specific sins? God has no problem communicating with us what that is. (laughs) He will let you know, amen. So so as as it relates to resetting our lives this Sunday for the week ahead of us, as it relates to resetting our lives as we have partaken of the bread and of the cup in resetting our lives, realigning our lives. What is God calling you, beloved, to to realign? What needs to be uh, left? What needs to be uh, disregarded and denied in your life? That's the mark of a Christian. Because this right here, going this way and then returning back to God, it's not a one-time deal, amen? Are you listening? A Christian is a lifelong repenter and returner, all right? We sin, we get up, go back to God. Go back to God. There's one more picture I have today. Number four, miracles can be used to speak of the final restoration of all things. Oh, this is so good. This might be my favorite out of the four pictures. Is it okay if I have a favorite? I'm voting for number four. (laughs) Miracles can be used to speak, not just of personal responsibility, right, or the prophetic fulfillment of God's plan, but included with that is the final restoration of all things. I'm gonna bring out the big E word, eschatology, (laughs) the doctrine of last things. We're headed somewhere, beloved. Amen. We're headed somewhere. There is an end to this world. It's coming probably a lot sooner than we, most, we, we think. Verse 20, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. By the way, have you been picking up what Peter's, there's a lot of prophet talk in this. Have you noticed that? All the preaching of the prophets, all the prophets, all the prophets. Now he's going to actually break it down for us here. Beginning with Moses. Now, remember what I said about miracles last week? Y'all remember? Think about miracles. They're not just for show. 
okay? Like God's showing off, although he can do whatever he wants to. And in one sense, it is a show off, but it's not just a raw demonstration of his power. Look at me, I'm God, I can do this. Okay, don't think about miracles like that. Miracles are used by God to communicate a message, okay? And what is that message? That God is powerful? Well, absolutely, yes. That God's power is greater than disease or demon? Yes, but there's more. Miracles are performed by God through his people, sometimes without his people, to point to the eventual and total reversal and repair to all things by God. That's the message. It's pregnant with meaning. It's an indication, okay? Because what happened to that lame man after he was healed of his lameness? Eventually, what happened to him? Bye-bye. He died. See? Full restoration, health, wholeness, but eventually he died. See? So what's being communicated here through miracles is God saying, I am, here's just a little indication that, yeah, I am here on earth, <laughs> and I do intervene. In fact, I, I uphold Adam's by the word of my power. Right? He upholds all things by the word of his power. And he's communicating all that the evil one has done in this earth, I'm restoring that, I am repairing that, ultimately and finally. God, in other words, what are you saying, Pastor Mark? This is what I'm saying. God is going to get his Eden back for his people. You follow? That's why the Edenic pictures pop up in the last book of the Bible called the book of the Revelation. God's gonna get his Eden back for his people. God is going to restore all things back to Eden's paradise. Amen. Satan is not gonna win. He's going to end up in hell. Evil and suffering will come to an end. There is a termination to pain and injustice. God is a good God, and he's gonna restore justice on the earth. Do you trust him for that? God... I like to maybe put it this way. God is going to literally fire the devil. Amen. He's going to fire him and his demons and everyone else who rebels against him. God is going to see that every one of his children get their justice upon those who have caused harm to them. Hold on to this hope in the midst of suffering, beloved. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of despair. Hold on to this hope. And remember, hope in the Bible is not mere wishful thinking. It's delayed reality. This restoration that Peter speaks of was first spoken by Moses, which he says in verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Whoa. He's there to edify. He's there to judge. That prophetic office has been fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen. Started with Moses. Verse uh, 24, it's not just Moses. The restoration was also spoken of by Samuel. 
by Samuel. Now, I wish I had time, but I don't. I wanted to show you 1 Samuel 3. It is absolutely fascinating. And uh, if you would, um, before you like, um, I don't know, take your Sunday nap or watch the football game, read, read Samuel 3, would you? Just read Samuel 3, but read it slowly. Read it slowly. You will find is that the Lord appears to Samuel the boy while he was sleeping in the temple, and hopefully no one's sleeping at this time in this sanctuary, but I, I digress. But when you read 1 Samuel 3 slowly, the narration is subtle, it's very subtle. It seems to bring together Yahweh, God, who appears to Samuel and, quote, the word of the Lord together. They're the same, and yet they're two. For example, let's go ahead and put the slide up. I can show you this. First Samuel, uh, oh, go, go to the first Samuel one. I'm getting ahead of myself. Do you have that on there? Is it further down? First Samuel 3.21. There, nope, that's not it. There we go. First Samuel 3.21, notice. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Who appeared? Good. Because, of, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. What? So it's like there's two, but they seem to be one and the same. You see that? You may not, but if you go back and read, that's the bottom of the chapter. So go back and read 1 Samuel 3, but read it slowly and see. This is one of actually many passages in the Old Testament where it seems as if the angel of the Lord appears, but wait a minute, when you hear the narration, it's actually God appearing. So which is it? Is it God or is it the angel of the Lord? And the answer is yes, two, two. But the angel of the Lord in those passages in the Old Testament are equal to God himself. And a Jewish rabbi who studied Second Temple Judaism from the period A.D. 5, uh, sorry, uh, B, 500 B.C. to A.D. 100, there was within Judaism uh, the idea of not one but two powers in heaven or two Yahwehs. And this and other Old Testament passages, that's where they get it from. But guess what happened? Jesus Christ came and the church exploded and by the second and third centuries, guess what the rabbis are saying? Oh yeah, all that two power stuff in heaven, those two Yahweh's, no, that's heretical. That's heretical. So it's fascinating that this restoration is spoken of not only by Moses, but it's also spoken of here by Samuel. This restoration was spoken by all the prophets according to verse 24. And likewise, all the prophets, Peter says, who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward and announced these things. When you, uh, when you start studying the prophets, usually the four big ones, they have this type of relevatory experience of God, right? And then the other prophets, and the word of the Lord came to such and such, and the word of the Lord came to such and such. And looking back now, I think that word of the Lord is Jesus, as John says in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was Okay. So, so the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was the word. So we should read that from a Jewish perspective, right? Read your Bibles from left to right. You follow me? Left to right. Old Testament, New Testament. <clears throat> 
Finally, this restoration was started with Abraham. You got Moses, you got Samuel, all the prophets, and then he goes, jumps back, Abraham. Verses 25 to 26, I hear alarm. Is that my cue to wrap this message up? Too bad. Actually, we gotta beat, we gotta beat the Methodist to the uh, cafeteria, so I'll wrap it up, okay? No, no, not yet, just a little bit more. So Peter says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel announce these last days. Last days coming. In fact, they proclaimed there was one day. One day, it's called, this is a pregnant term in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord. There's coming one day when he comes to fight for his people and restore all things. He's gonna do it in a day. And he has already set it off at Calvary. And he's coming back to finish it. Amen. Doubters, beware. Because when he comes, you can, you know, say, but, 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 what, no, but, but. All that's going to be gone. He will close every mouth. He will judge in such a perfect way, perfect way, that every mouth will be silenced, Paul says. Everybody in the universe will know that God is right, that God is just. You ready for that day? Run to Jesus if you're not. He's the only place for shelter. (laughs) He's the only place for shelter. Some of you know, uh, me and a couple of our sons, we we had to go to Florida this week to get a used car for the family. And on our way, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're in the middle of the state, Mississippi. Some people call it Mississippi. No, it's Mississippi, okay? All right? And I don't know where we were, but I was enjoying the ride. The boys had the earbuds in their ears. I had the satellite Sirius XM radio on 80s on 8. It was a lovely time as a family. Okay, and there was a tropical storm, unbeknownst to me, in the Gulf. You guys know about this? That's why you, we got dumped on here. And it's 2.30 p.m., and I, it's been a long time since I saw it that dark at 2.30 p.m. Rain just coming down like you haven't seen in a long time. And all of a sudden, out of that piercing on our phones is geek, geek, geek. Tornado warning. Seek shelter immediately. What on earth is that? I had to turn down, turn down my tunes. I had to wake up, boys. Okay, get your phones up. Get the weather app, and let me know what it says. Get the kind of, you got the radar. Okay, let me know what's, what's going on. And they did so, and they showed me their phones, and it wasn't good. Big old red block. Not tornado watch. We had an argument over, is the tornado watch bad or is tornado warning bad? I said, guys, the tornado warning is bad. And one of them said, no, Dad, tornado watch is bad. All right, get on the internet and Google that. I'm telling you, the warning is worse than the watch, okay? <laughs> I'm trying to do this and drive. We're arguing about that, and it comes up again, tornado warning. Seek shelter immediately. Oh, my word, get the app out. So I was right that time, amen. <laughs> warning is worse than the watch. Big old red screen, and we're right in the middle of the red. I'm trying to drive, and there's nowhere to seek shelter. There's nowhere. We're in the middle of nowhere. No overpass. 
I look to the right. I mean, there's like a ditch, but are we literally going to go into the ditch and seek shelter? We just get stuck in the ditch, and then, right? It reminded me of many things, but I literally said to them, guys, we could die here. I told them that. I said, there's nowhere to go. We're just going to keep on going and be at the mercy of God. Right? So we just kept on cruising, and thankfully, a tornado didn't hit us. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. There is a storm coming, and it's a righteous storm. It's a godly storm. It's a holy storm. It's the storm of God's wrath and justice. I mean, haven't you had things happen in your life that were just flat out wrong and evil done to you? Or perhaps not to you. How about your loved one? Wrong. You don't see, you don't think God sees that? Oh, yes, he does. He's a good God. My, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a good God. He loves justice. That's why he judges that's why he's angry. By the way, I mentioned the atheist, the, the Romans 1 passage. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. That's why people, listen, that's why people fear God ultimately deep inside of them. They fear him. And so it's very psychologically understanding when we say, he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. I don't believe in him. <laughs> when deep inside they know, in fact, oh yes, he does exist. You see? So there's a storm coming, beloved, and I'm urging you, and God, listen, God has allowed you to hear this message through this puny old uh, cracked pot, amen, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's calling us, if you haven't, he's calling us to surrender to him. Just give up the fight. Surrender to him and believe, believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, that will be God's grace and mercy all over you. So this restoration was started with Moses, Samuel, all the prophets, and then he kind of hops back to Abraham. Now one one other thing I wanted to um, highlight here is that Peter says that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel announced these last days. So where did they get their calling from? In other words, how do people know who the true prophets of God are and who the false prophets of deception are? Because they're out there. They're out there back then. That's another story within the big story of the Old Testament, right? You have true prophets of God, false prophets of God. So how do you know the difference? God himself answers that question from Jeremiah 23. So let's pull that up, brother, for the brethren. Jeremiah 23. If you've never read read Jeremiah uh, 23, add that to your 1 Samuel 3 reading for this afternoon, okay? Notice what God says. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. So do you see what false prophets say? You're okay, everybody's okay, there's peace. You can basically go ahead and walk in the stubbornness and uh, stubbornness of your own heart. Calamity will not come upon you. There's no danger, there's no warning. 
That's the mark of a false prophet. In contradistinction to that, verse 18, God says, but who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Hit the pause button. How do you see a word? It's one thing to hear a word. How do you see his word? I'm going back to, I believe that word is Jesus. Amen. In the beginning was the word. Who has stood in the what? Counsel of the Lord. Is that not cool or what? In other words, do you see, the, do you see what's, what I'm setting up here? All of the true prophets of God have stood in the counsel of the Lord to get their calling and to get their message. You see that? You need another verse? I'll give it to you. Same chapter. How many times do you need to see it? I just need to see it once. How about you? Okay. I'll give you a second one, then, then we'll uh, wrap up. Verse 21. I did not send these prophets, talking about the false prophets, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Do you see that? So a couple marks of the prophets. What do they do? They have stood in the counsel of the Lord. They get their commissioning. They speak God's words to God's people. And what is that a word of, beloved? What's the word? Go back and look at it. They would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. That's the mark of a prophet of God. That's the mark of the true message of good preaching, right? Turning people back from evil ways. You see that? In fact, let me jump to verse 26. You still have your Bibles up? Look at verse 26 of Acts 3. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you. How? What does it say? How? What, is, what does the blessing look like? Well, I want that pink Cadillac. Amen, bless God. I want the favor of God for that pink Cadillac in my life. I have the faith to believe, amen. I'm gonna blab it and grab it to the glory of God. Right? All that garbage is on TV, it's ridiculous. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Sensitivity to sin, that's the mark of a genuine Christian. Again, repenting. Repenting, returning, that's the mark of God in someone's life. And on the other side, it's no. Don't tell me how to uh, run my life. God made me this way. Very common, right? It's the woman you gave me. God made me this way. Defense, rationalization, projection of blame for their evil ways. Now real quick, What's the next slide? I think we've got, so here's, here's all, the old, all the books of the Old Testament, okay? Look how much of the Old Testament is gone if we took out the writings of the prophets. Boom. See that visually? That's a whole lot of uh, scriptures there. So do you see how important the divine counsel is as it relates to the commissioning and the, uh, the ministry of the prophetic and the Old Testament? In fact, if you look at 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Second Chron- uh, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, let's take them out because a lot of the prophetic material is in there. So that's basically your Old Testament there without the prophetic material. 
That's a lot of the Old Testament. Do you see that? Now, back to verse 25 and 26. This restoration started with Abraham. And beloved, we're living in the last days, and these days are marked by discouragement and despair. We should not only uh, exegete the scriptures, but we should also exegete the culture. And from what I'm reading of the culture, in one way there's nothing new under the, the sun, but in another way it's becoming increasingly lawless. And because of that, the love of many will grow cold, Jesus said. And there's people that are swimming in deep, dark oceans of discouragement and despair. Recently, the Centers for Disease Control came out with a new study which said the suicide rate among children aged 10 to 14 has nearly tripled from 2007 to 2017. Did you hear me? Suicide rate for children ages 10 to 14 has nearly tripled from 2007 to 2017. The suicide rate among older teenagers has increased by 76%, according to the CDC. In 2017, suicide was the second leading cause of death for children ages 10 to 14, teenagers 15 to 19, and young adults ages 20 to 24. Somebody's turning up the heat and putting a big old dark cloud of despair on our children and young adults, and they're killing themselves because of it. The co-writer of the uh, CDC uh, report said not only is suicide trending upward, but the pace of increase is actually accelerating. Beloved, we have the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's a matter of life and death for those around us. Miracles can be used to speak of personal responsibility for sin. Have you taken responsibility for the death of Jesus Christ? Remember I mentioned Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, and me. I'm responsible for the death of Jesus. As are you. As his people, as are you. Miracles can be used to speak of the prophetic promise and fulfillment in Christ. Are you ready to speak this truth to another person? Do you have an answer for the atheist or whomever? Are you prepared? Be prepared. Miracles can be used to speak of repentance. And for us today, what is God calling us to repent of together? What is it? Finally, miracles can speak of the final restoration of all things. So are you holding on to this hope or are you looking more at yourself and your past and your own circumstances more than Jesus and the blessed hope of his return? See? My prayer is that God blesses us today and according to verse 26, that blessing is turning every one of us from our wicked ways. Would you pray with me? Let's move into a time of prayer.